Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Let's get started. Um, so, um, my name is Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm Research Director here at the Women in um, Public Policy Program, which yeah, gives me the honor of hosting this seminar. Um, I'm very excited. I'm going to, looking forward to, um, particularly looking forward to introducing today's speaker. Before I do, um, I'd like you all to um, imagine that we're not just in a small seminar, but in a, a much broader community of um, seminar participants, because the uh, WAP <coughs> seminar podcast has been downloaded now um, more than uh, 12 or 13 or 70,000 times. And so um, as we participate in the seminar, we want to keep in mind that there are all these other folks who are listening in. And so we have, we ask, obviously, we'll, we'll turn on cell phones, but also that as we um, pose um, questions and make comments that we make sure that they are, um, you know, on the subject and um, uh, genuinely questions for our speaker. Um, and we are recording today or not? Okay, great. So everybody is aware of that. Um, the, uh, uh, here at the Women in Public Policy uh, program, we are committed to closing gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. and. Uh, this uh, lofty, uh, this, this uh, seminar contributes toward that lofty object objective by uh, connecting um, important academic work uh, with our community of researchers, students, and practitioners. And our speaker today is really someone who has been such an important thought leader, um, particularly in the area of um, equal uh, economic uh, participation and opportunity. Uh, Professor Francine Blau is the Francis Perkins Professor of Industrial and Labor Relations uh, and a Professor of Economics at Cornell University. Um, she's also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research in, in Cambridge, down the street here, and a research fellow at the, um, the institute, we're debating the name of it in English, but it's the Institute for the, the, the Study of uh, Work or for the Future of Work. Uh, um, but um, this is one of the foremost international uh, uh, research institutes for the, for, um, the study of uh, labor economics. And she received from this institute in 2010 um, the Outstanding Achievement in Labor Economics Prize and was the first woman to, achieve, to receive this uh, prestigious award. She was in 2001 the recipient of the Carolyn um, Shaw Bell Award and the AEA from the, um, the AEA's uh, Committee on the Status of Women in the Economics Profession for furthering the status of women in economics profession. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I have so many details that I could read on her numerous publications and her books and her awards and the so economic associations that she's led. Um, uh, but uh, Professor Blau is really one of the people who has most helped us understand um, the effects of gender on participation in the labor market and in particular the gender wage gap which has become such now um, a hotly debated um, uh, issue. And so I just am going to stop there and hand it over. We are so honored to have you here today, and particularly to be hearing your really latest research on um, what really, wh where does this gender gap really come from, and how should we understand this? So I'll stop there. Please join me in. Um, thank you so much. That was just a lovely introduction. I really appreciate it. And um, I, I didn't know about your podcast. Congratulations on that. That's really something. So um, I, I, I hope I haven't 
bitten off a little too much more than I can chew in this presentation in the sense that this is based on a paper, The Gender Wage Gap, Extent, Trends, and Explanations, that's co-authored with uh, Lawrence Kahn, my, my colleague at Cornell, and also some of you may know my husband. <laughs> um, and uh, we wrote it for the Journal of Economic Literature. And those of you who know that journal know that the, one of the things that stands out about those papers, if nothing else, is their length. So <laughs> I've tried to condense it today. It's also an NBR working paper, so if you want to look into some of these things in greater detail, I encourage you to go there. Now, the uh, overview of the paper is that it really has two parts. The first part, is new empirical evidence on the extent, the trends, and the sources of the gender wage gap uh, between over a 30-year period from 1980 to 2010. And we find the gender gap declined substantially. Um, we suggest how we can account for this decrease in terms of measurable factors, what various factors played a role, <coughs> and we ask how much of a gap remains and what causes it. And these questions in the empirical part are addressed in terms of simple statistical analysis, uh, regression-based analysis, but we use this as a, a springboard uh, to review the literature but to kind of uh, focus our literature review uh, somewhat in terms of uh, what we've learned in the empirical part. Some of the factors we'll talk about in the literature view build on the measured factor, factors that we included in our statistical analysis. Um, others are not included, are not possible to include with conventional data sets, and they potentially impact the unexplained gap. Uh, but there's a technical point I'd like to make here, and that is, even if some very important factors, um, Hannah sitting here reminds me negotiation, a very important factor, cannot be included in our statistical analysis, it doesn't mean that they actually are not uh, entirely not controlled for. Uh, take, for example, we're going to see that women tend to shy away from competition in certain circumstances compared to men. Uh, we don't have a control for that, but we do have a control for occupation. And shying away from competition may Im impact what occupation you're in. So uh, I, I say this as a caution because sometimes you get this unexplained gap that's bigger than we want, but it's not enormous. And then we tell you there's a hundred things that, that might push that around. And you say, well, maybe there's no discrimination. And that's something I do not believe. So. Uh, we review what we call traditional explanations, and that is within the context of economics. I know this is an interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary group, but uh, things that economists have been focusing on in understanding the gender gap for quite a while. Uh, human capital, that is people's investments in education and on-the-job training. Uh, discrimination, or uh, an unexplained difference that appears to be due to how uh, uh, women are treated differently than men in the labor force, uh, the gender division of labor in the family. And calling those traditional explanations in the review part, we try to focus uh, particularly on new theory and new results. And then new approaches, and I have to say that these are probably somewhat new approaches to economists, maybe more than to other social scientists, 
but non-cognitive skills or psychological attributes is one, and uh, gender norms uh, is another. So let me first turn to the uh, empirical work. In terms of the extent of the gap and the trends, uh, I'm going to here focus on our, the portion of the analysis that uses a data set called the Panel Study of Income Dynamics, the PSID. Uh, the reason this is such an important uh, data set for analyzing gender is it's a nationally representative data set that includes information on actual labor market experience, how much experience the uh, respondent has had. And our other uh, available uh, large data sets do not have this information. Now, uh, going back to some of the earliest analyses of the gender uh, wage gap, one of the primary differences between men and women in the labor market is more often women have had workforce interruptions that has, you know, reduced their experience. And this is one factor we want to monitor and see its impact. The PSID enables us to do that. Uh, we focus on full-time workers with considerable uh, attachment to the labor force over the year. They, they have to have worked uh, 26 weeks or more. And the idea there is to identify a group of men and women that are roughly comparable or more comparable in terms of their workforce commitment. Uh, the workers are age 25 to 64. That um, doesn't hold for everybody, but for a lot of the population by age 25, you're done with your education. And uh, also doesn't hold for everybody, but uh, uh, 64 is the considered pre-retirement years. You haven't retired yet. And I would just tell you, since there are some issues that I don't have time to go into about the representativeness of the PSID, that all the results, broad results I'm giving you here, we have checked against the current population survey, which is a very representative data uh, base, and the results are similar. So we're gonna, I'm going to base this on regression analyses, and there are going to be two major specifications. The first specification we, I call the, we call the human capital specification. It controls for the two major human capital variables, education and experience. Uh, I also have in the regressions race and region as simply control variables. They're not there to shed light on the gender gap. Um, then we, we have a full specification, which in addition controls for occupation, industry, and unionism. So why do we break it up like this? Well, clearly, education and experience are individual characteristics. It, it, people make decisions about how much education to get, uh, how, how, uh, how much time to spend in the labor force. And they're not completely what economists call exogenous. I mean, those decisions are influenced by the opportunities people have in the labor market, but they're kind of more clearly individual characteristics. It gets more complicated when you get to occupation industry and unionism where unionism is, tends to be assigned by the job you're in because you may decide what job you want to be in, but employers also have a say as to where you're hired. So those variables are a little more complicated, and it's interesting to break them out separately. They give us information about people's human capital and skills, but they might also be contaminated by uh, discrimination. So let's start with what has happened to the gap over the, or, uh, over the uh, 30 year period. Now, I just have to give you some terminology. 
I find a measure of the gender difference, the female to male wage ratio, to be a more user-friendly idea. You can understand right away when I say that in 1980, women on average earned 62% of what men earned. Uh, the gap is kind of one minus that. The gap is roughly 38%. Um, uh, uh, so I'm going to go back and forth between those two terms. Uh, we, the progress for women is the ratio increasing or the gap decreasing. Uh, well, the gender pay gap narrowed, the ratio rose, and it actually rose quite substantially between 1980 and 2010 uh, from 62% uh, to 79%. Uh, that's even more impressive because prior to 1980, there had been, for a very long time, since the 1950s, virtually no sign of a decrease in the gender gap. Um, but another thing that jumps out at you if you look at this figure is a lot of the increase was uh, uh, accomplished in the 1980s. So we've had an increase in the ratio the whole time. But uh, the major progress was during the 80s, and since then, progress has been slower and uh, less consistent. And that's not something I'm going to emphasize very much here, but it is something Larry, my co-author Larry and I have looked at. Now, in terms of explaining this, um, a very simple way to look at this is to compare the unadjusted gap to uh, two other gaps. Uh, uh, the unadjusted gap, again, is in blue. And the um, first gap, uh, excuse me, ratio is uh, adjusted for the human capital specification. So that means how much do women earn relative to men if they have the same education and experience? And then we also have results for the full specification if, in addition, they're located as best as we can measure it in the same occupations, uh, industries, and they have the same uh, union status. So let's start at the left there with 1980. And that's kind of um, the way economists looked at this for quite a while. It's very well behaved in a sense. You have women earning 62% of what men earn, but if you control for gender differences in education and experience, and I'll tell you right now, experience is particularly important, it jumps considerably to 71%. That means that education and experience in 1980 accounted for a lot of the gap. And when you add the additional factors, which for summary I'll call location, industry, occupation, and unionism, location, it jumps further to 79%. Um, that also tells you, that, that tells you those factors were quite important in 1980, but it also tells you a lot uh, was unexplained. 100% minus this ratio is uh, the gap that is not explained by these factors. So in 1980, women with the same uh, characteristics earned 20% uh, um, less than men. So what's happening over time? two things I'd like to, uh, at least to emphasize here. Uh, one is all these lines, oh, I forgot, all these lines increase between 1980 and 1989. That means uh, not only did the unadjusted gap rise, 
But the unexplained gap fell considerably. It means the unexplained gap fell considerably. By 1989, women with the, the same characteristics in the full specification were earning 92% of what men earned. Um, so one interesting thing is there's no decline in the unexplained gap after 1989. Uh, so that's one finding from that. So the decline in the unexplained, decrease in the unexplained gap explained a lot in the 80s, not so much since then. We haven't gone backwards, but we haven't made further progress in that. Uh, the other thing is look at the last set of bars for 2010. Um, there's not much difference between the unadjusted and the human capital adjusted. And your um, professor, Claudia Golden, has called that the human capital portion has been squeezed out. It doesn't explain as much as it used to. So women still earn less than men. The pay gap has fallen. But much less of it is due to human capital taken uh, together. Notice those locational factors still hold up. There's still a big difference between the maroon bar and the green bar, meaning that location is still quite important. Um, well, let me elaborate on the human capital part. This uh, table here gives the contribution of various groups of measured characteristics to the gender pay gap in two years, 1980 and 2010 for the human capital and the full <coughs> specification. So there's a lot of numbers there, but let me just make a few points about them. First of all, look in 1980. Here again, we see how important experience used to be. In the human capital specification, experience in 1980 explained 24% of the gender wage differential. Uh, education did not explain that much, but it favored men. Fast forward to 2010, what has changed? Do you see the signs in the top row there? It means that education does not help to explain the gender gap. It increases the amount we need to explain. Why is that? Because women are now better educated than men. All right, men, and this is not just in the United States. This is in most of the uh, advanced uh, industrialized economies. Women used to be less likely to go to college than men. Now they are more likely to go to college than men. That started in 1980, that women caught up to men, but then surprisingly they surpassed. They began to surpass men. And as these new, better educated cohorts have entered the labor market, now for the whole population, women on average are more likely to be college graduates than men. Um, experience is actually still important. So. Uh, Claudia Golden is right that it's been squeezed, but it has not been squeezed out entirely. The fact that women have shorter and more disrupted uh, work experience than men is still a factor now explaining 14 to 16 percent of the gap instead of 21 to 24 percent, but a reduced amount. Um, occupation and industry are still quite <coughs> important. Look at these rows here. Together, they add up to about half the gap. So in terms of what we can measure in conventional statistical analyses, occupation and industry, um, and the fact that women are in different occupations and industries than men are, uh, is still quite important. 
And then further, if we look at the, the second to last row, we see the unexplained gap is still important, Expl uh, uh, much more important in the human capital specification than the full specification. But in both of them, there is um, some gap that we cannot explain by measured characteristics. What does that mean? What does that mean? Um, it could be a measure of discrimination against women. And in terms of the definition economists use, it's not an unreasonable measure of discrimination. That is um, the portion of the pay gap that is not <coughs> accounted for by productivity differences. So that's why we look at it as a possible measure of discrimination. However, there may be important unmeasured characteristics in our analysis, either things that are intrinsically uh, difficult, impossible to measure, uh, that employers, though, are aware of, or just things we happen not to have in our data set, college major. You know, there's gender differences in that. That's not in our data set. If men are better qualified on unmeasured characteristics, that could help to explain the unexplained gap, and, and the unexplained gap would overestimate discrimination. Um, I might say it's also possible that women are better qualified on some unmeasured characteristics, so that works the other way. But the other factor that most concerns me is if our analysis controls for variables that might themselves reflect discrimination, let's say discrimination in hiring, uh, then we're over-controlling, and the unexplained gap could underestimate discrimination. And you can see how important it is, because in 2010, the portion of the gap that's unexplained is 84%, the vast majority, in the human capital specification, where we just control for experience and education. But it's only 38%, still important, but 38% in the full specification. And I don't have a, I want to alert you to this, but I don't have a, an answer to this with this kind of analysis and data. But I am, in the literature review, going to mention studies that suggest, they don't tell us the exact amount, but strongly suggest discrimination is still a factor. Now, I, I do want to talk about how we account for the uh, narrowing of the gap. But before I go there, I want to talk about one more set of analyses. And that uh, is a question of how more skilled women are faring. Can I uh, yeah, back? go ahead. Are you open to clarification? Oh, absolutely. So, Definitely. So going back, so I just, just to make sure, so an example <coughs> of if we over-control the unexplained gap, we would underestimate discrimination. So for instance, um, non-voluntary sex segregation of occupations would be an example of that. Per exactly. Okay, good. Completely. Thank you. And thanks for clarifying that. Um, we find the gender wage gap closed more slowly at the top of the wage distribution, both unadjusted and controlling for measured factors. So let me just walk you through that uh, um, with a diagram. So uh, we look at three percentiles of the wage distribution, the 10th, 50th, and 90th. And what that means is, for the 10th, we compare a woman at the 10th percentile of the female wage distribution, how much she earns, to a man at the 10th percentile of the male wage distribution, how much he earns. And what I'd like to point out about 1980, and I'm saying this is unadjusted, this is just 
what we find in terms of mean wages, there's not much difference across those three groups. Um, not much to write home about either. They, they earn, women earn 61 to 63 percent of what men earn across each of those percentiles. Very different in 2010. Um, at the 10th percentile, um, women earn 82 percent. At the 50th percentile, they earn 81 percent. And then they go down to 74 percent at the 90th percentile. Well, you might be thinking maybe uh, the women at the top have more um, differences with men in terms of their measure characteristic. Maybe that's why. And the answer is no. So you can see in the last two set of graphs that adjusting for measure characteristics, as we did for the labor force as a whole, you don't find too much difference in how each percentile fares in 1980 between women earning between 77 and 82 percent of what men earn. In 2010, it's massive. At the 10th percentile, women may earn as much as 97 percent of what men earn. I think that personally is an overestimate. Um, and it's measured with a bit of error. But in any case, they're doing quite well, controlling for measure characteristics. Uh, 92 percent at the median, the 50th and only 84% at the top. So that's something I'm going to be returning to in the literature review portion. We might want to be asking, uh, why is that? Why are women at the top faring particularly poorly? And why is that the development now over the past 30 years? Yeah. Just a quick clarifying question yes. on this. Um, are the wages, are they defined, are they hourly wages? Yes, they are. OK, so it's not the difference in hours, which can Thank you for asking that question. It's definitely hourly wages. It's not differences in hours, except we will be getting to Claudia Golden's view that differences in hours can affect wages. But you're absolutely right. And also, just a clarification, yeah. um, that also includes bonus and everything, variable pay. Um, yes, uh, in the se if they're reported correctly, because these hours are really average hourly earnings. So it's the amount that the person earned over the year divided by the number of hours they worked over the year. And bonuses could be a factor. Um, so let me just jump to one more set of empirical results before the literature review. And that is, what accounts for the decrease in the overall gender wage gap? What accounts for the decrease in the overall gender wage gap over this 30-year period, uh, where the gap fell from 39% to 21% as the ratio rose from 61 to 79%? And I'm not going to show you our analysis, but I am going to show you the, our major results. First of all, part of it is women worked hard for what they got. They improved their measured skills. Their labor force attachment and experience increased. The gender gap in experience, this is very dramatic, fell from 6.8 years to 1.4 years, enormous uh, decrease in the male-female difference in experience. This is full-time experience. Um, this is mostly reflecting female gains, but the recession is also an impact for men, because a lot of men were unemployed during the recession, and that, that negatively affected their experience. And that's going to be a little bit of a theme here. And uh, it's, not, uh, it's becoming more of a theme in general among economists. Uh, 
some of uh, some of the advancement of women is is women uh, gaining, but some of the advancement of women relative to men is men not doing that well. And this is an example um, of uh, losing a bit of experience during the recession. Uh, in education, uh, and if we have time and questions, I'd love to come back to it. Women now receive 15% of 57% uh, of bachelor's degrees in the uh, full population. Now, as I mentioned before, they're more likely to have gone uh, to college. Oh, by the way, I have just taken the portion explained out of um, one of our specifications. It's the full specification. And so I find that we find that uh, labor force and attachment and experience gains of women explain about 14% of the narrowing. Education advances of women explain 18%. Uh, um, women upgraded their occupations relative to men. That explains about 15%. First of all, oh, let me just clarify. I don't know how to say it. I always say women moved out of traditionally female clerical service jobs. I don't mean the exact women moved out. I mean the, the distributions changed in that direction. But anyway, women's uh, concentration in clerical and service jobs decreased, and their um, representation in traditionally male managerial and professional occupations increased. This is clearly upgrading for women. Um, this, to me, represents both an increase in skills of women, and, and that's part of the educational thing, too. I mean, increased uh, representation of women in medical school, law school, uh, MBA programs. But it is also true men uh, lost a, a relatively higher paying production jobs, and their representation in service jobs increased. So some of this represents losses uh, uh, for men. Uh, there is a narrowing of the gender gap in unionism that explains 12 percent. Um, men used to have an enormous advantage in unionism, meaning they were much more likely to be unionized workers than women were. Uh, unionism has fallen precipitously in the United States. I mean, we're flirting with uh, low double digits and in the private sector maybe even single uh, digits. Uh, that disproportionately affected men. The losses in the union movement were concentrated in industries and occupations where men had traditionally predominated. Um, but in the public sector, where unionized women are more likely to be, um, the uh, unions held up better. So anyway, this contributed to the, to it, the, uh, the decline. Um, now, I have to say not all factors worked in that direction. And one thing that Larry and I have emphasized in some other of our work is with rising inequality, uh, uh, prices may change, overall prices for everybody, may change in a way that disadvantages uh, groups like women. In particular, what we found here is that uh, women advanced by moving into traditionally male occupations, but the pay gap between more female areas and more male areas widened. And that actually worked to widen the gender pay gap, but it was compensated for by the other factors I mentioned. And one more 
which was there was a decrease in the unexplained gap, which actually alone is large enough to explain 58% of the uh, reduction in uh, the gender pay gap. Uh, and that, as we saw, was especially large in the 1980s. Now, uh, as a social scientist, you don't like to kind of come to one of your big conclusions and say, so the major explanation is that it's unexplained. <laughs> you know, I mean, but that is uh, kind of what we find here. Uh, but, and actually, the lack of a substantial decrease in the unexplained gap since the 1980s is one of the major reasons for the slowdown in progress. Why did the unexplained gap decrease? We actually have looked at it in other work, and we've found evidence for each of these three reasons. A decline in discrimination, and that makes a lot of intuitive sense, because as women have gotten more firmly attached to the labor force, as they've gone, uh, gotten education in non-traditional areas, I think employers' uh, stereotypic views of them have uh, changed and gotten more positive, what we call statistical discrimination against them has probably decreased. Um, there's probably been an improvement in women's unmeasured skills, and we present a, a little ev evidence in that in one of our papers about a, a little greater share in uh, housework for men and women. Yeah? Uh, which portion of the unexplained gap can be explained by the policies, the organizational policies? Of uh, the policies of like firms? Or, yeah. yeah, I don't know specifically. That it's would be like interesting. Like, how many policies that organization or at the national level? Uh, uh, discrimination, anti-discrimination yeah. policy. We, we look at that a little bit. I just don't think that literature is mature enough to give you a, a, a specific answer. There we usually get um, studies that suggest, yes, actually, the government policies have played a role and been positive or yes, uh, some organizational policies, but not something that adds up that I could tell you what portion. Good question. And then another thing here, I don't have time to go into much detail, but I think uh, then there's evidence that economy-wide trends have favored women relative to men. Specifically, um, it is um, manufacturing, and blue-collar jobs that have been declining, health and education jobs have been increasing. As the areas, uh, white-collar jobs have been increasing, as the areas where women traditionally predominate have expanded more than the areas where men have traditionally predominated, that is an outward shift in demand, an increase in demand that favors women wherever they might be located. So I think that's um, another factor. So quick summary. Pay gap fell most rapidly in the 1980s. Um, the most important factors accounting for the decrease are education, convert, gender convergence in education, where women actually now exceed men, experience and occupations, and unionism, uh, and the decline in the unexplained gap. By 2010, human capital accounted for little of the gap taken together, but I think it's important you bear in mind experience is still important and there's offsetting things going on there with women having now more education than men. In 2010, the traditional factors of occupation and industry location are still important and there is still an unexplained gap. 
And it's also interesting that there's a slower decrease in the gap at the top, both unadjusted and controlling for uh, measured characteristics. So uh, in terms of explanations, starting with some traditional ones, human capital, um, it does account for less than it did in the past, experience. Um, uh, but I think it's important to point out here, looking at the broader literature, that experience and hours worked do remain particularly important in high-skilled jobs. And remember that the gap declined less for high-skilled uh, uh, workers. So we have two uh, important studies here, one by Noonan et al. for lawyers and one by Bertrand et al. Uh, for MBAs. In the Bertrand, Bertrand et al. paper, they emphasize extremely large penalties for taking any time out whatsoever. Now, as Claudia Golden has pointed out, that kind of conflicts with the human capital explanation. So I haven't gone into great detail here, but the basic idea of the human capital explanation is you learn important skills on the job, and then during periods of time out, out of the job, your skills depreciate. You know, God, I used to remember how to do that, and I don't remember anymore. Uh, when you reach my age, that could happen even if you don't step out. <laughs> but anyway, you're, you, you could, uh, your skills could depreciate because you've forgotten things, and also because technology could advance. But as Golden has pointed out, why would even short, uh, I mean, short times out have large penalties. How much can you forget uh, in, in, uh, or not learn in, in three months or six months or whatever? Um, so Golden has, uh, and I would put this in the class of um, new theory and new empirical work that's quite interesting. Uh, she emphasizes the importance of temporal flexibility or the lack thereof and compensating differentials in explaining uh, the great importance of hours worked and the large effect of workforce disruption. So the idea that there are some occupations, uh, particularly those that um, put a great emphasis on uh, dealing with clients, uh, where individual workers are not very closely substitutable for each other, so I can't just say, oh, I'm off for three months, you take care of it, because you're not really briefed or uh, able to do it. Where face-to-face -face, uh, meetings in particular locations are especially important. In jobs like that, uh, Golden emphasizes that um, women who may not be able to put in the long jobs, I don't say able, who given the constraints in the home, maybe uh, reluctant uh, to put in the long hours that the men do, will not just earn less, as your question applies, on an hourly basis, but they will actually have a lower wage rate. They'll have a wage penalty due to that. And that fits into the literature of compensating differentials. They pay a wage penalty for the uh, desirable feature to them of greater uh, flexibility. Golden especially emphasizes that, but I'd also like to say the same argument applies for workforce disruptions, not just working less hours during the week, but workforce disruptions. And this is very interesting because it's an alternative to the human capital story. So it's a, it's a big theoretical advance that explains um, similar empirical facts. 
it especially applies to high-skill women, college graduates, and, and within that group to women in law and business. Uh, so those are areas where we've seen lack of progress. And Golden emphasizes this, very heavily emphasizes this is a within occupation story, but I think it could help <coughs> explain occupational segregation as well. You know, why don't we see more women financial consultants? Yeah. Uh, I mean, everything you just said. Um, here's an, a new trend that I'm seeing which might decrease that gap a little bit, um, and that is that employers think about this problem now, I think many employers slightly differently, in that Yes, a woman who is taking time out for a year or two um, will have less human and social capital when she comes back. But that's still better than a new hire. Yeah. So we're now all of a sudden seeing these re-entry programs. So all big banks in the US um, have started these re-entry um, programs for women who are taking time off. So I'm not, I don't think it's going to close the gap there. But it's interesting that, so I think it's an interesting intersection of maybe where human capital and discrimination kind of come together, and where maybe mindsets are starting to change with a clear rationale for employers. And I completely, I have speculated as much too because uh, as women just comprise a large portion of the available pool, I mean you can't hire for MBAs for jobs without hiring some women. Then once you've hired them, you have all these investments. An interesting thing to follow in this is how quickly do they uh, catch up uh, or do they get, well you're back but we're never going to look at you quite the same. So that would be very important. Uh, the traditional division of labor in the home, uh, there's a motherhood wage penalty. I can't go through all the details here, but uh, they find that women who have children controlling for measure characteristics earn uh, less than women who do not have children. Uh, males, males get a marriage premium. Uh, so maybe the traditional division of labor for mothers puts extra responsibilities on them. Given some traditional division of labor in the home, that the, the married man has extra support because he's his wife at home and he has extra responsibility, so there's a marriage premium. Uh, there's joint location issues that are fascinating, especially if you're involved with them. <laughs> but I think you're probably all in this group aware of that when people look for two jobs um, in the same location. And if the woman is the one to, um, to to be the trailing spouse that negatively affects her wages is probably more true that it's a woman than the man, although that's changing. Uh, but like, uh, one thing I'd like to emphasize is a fascinating recent study, a uh, more recent study by a sociologist which finds evidence, and I'm not disputing the, the reasons I already gave for these differences, but finds evidence that discrimination plays a role in the motherhood wage penalty. And uh, this is Carell, Bernard, and Paik. And they have lab and field experiments where they use identical resumes, but they hint that the uh, applicant is a parent or not. Specifically, they, for a parent, they say for extra activities, PTA. And for non-parent, they say neighborhood block association. And uh, they find evidence of discrimination of moms compared to non-mothers, but not of dads compared to, uh, to non-fathers. And in the field experiment, for example, mothers received lower callbacks than non-mothers, and there was no difference uh, for the men. And these are identical resumes except for parenting, so it's very striking. 
Um, moving on to discrimination, uh, I emphasize that the unexplained gap could not be viewed as a measure of discrimination, but is suggestive. I believe it is supported uh, by experimental evidence. And the two um, classic early uh, studies are, are, were by uh, Golden and Rass for symphony orchestras, and they found that women did better uh, when they could audition behind a screen, and the, uh, the auditors, uh, the people hiring, did not know if they were male or female. Uh, Newmark did a study where he found, again, was uh, in a field experiment, in this case, sending people out to apply for jobs as waiter or waitress. In the Philadelphia area, he found that firms, that high, uh, high-priced restaurants discriminated against women in hiring quite uh, sharply. And you can check this in your mind. Think of the last time you were to a high-priced restaurant. Very often they do have completely male uh, wait staff, although that's changing a bit. And then it seems to be still going on a couple of um, recent studies. Moss, Rakusin et al. This was heavily covered in the press. You may have seen this. But they um, uh, had, uh, embarrassed to say, college faculty in the natural sciences, male and female college faculty, review resumes of uh, college seniors who were looking for science lab manager jobs. And they said that those um, applicants did eventually want to go on for further work in the sciences. The male and the female faculty rated the females lower than the males with identical uh, resumes and suggested a lower, um, a lower salary for them. So um, that's uh, too bad. And then there's an interesting study by Rubin et al., a lab study on performing math tasks where if um, some of the participants in the study were employers and some were applicants. It's a math task where there were no average differences between men and women. And uh, I don't know if, the, uh, if they knew that, but uh, if they just hired basis, uh, based on the, they knew nothing about the appearance, which gave them the sex, they very much favored hiring males compared to females. The most striking thing, though, is when they got the scores of the males and the females on the math task in an earlier um, round, they still favored the male. It reduced it, but it did not eliminate it. And then we talked about uh, Carell et al. with the uh, parent. So I would say that experimental evidence lends support to the idea that at least some portion of the unexplained gap is due to discrimination. It does not, however, identify a particular magnitude or prove beyond a doubt that it is economy-wide, though I think it's very suggestive. And then, uh, can I have a few more minutes? Just yeah, to, oh, thanks. Yeah, good. Um, newer factors, and again, especially for this crowd, I have to say new, new to us economists, not, not necessarily new to others, um, are uh, people have been looking for a term, some economists call it soft skills, actually, I didn't put that there. I kind of like that term. Uh, but non-cognitive skills were the ideas, you know, proficiency in reading, math, science, that's cognitive. These are sort of non-cognitive skills. Or gender differences in psychological attributes. 
Um, and we have considerable evidence for the first three uh, that uh, favors men relative to women. In negotiation, women are less comfortable negotiating and they're less likely to, to negotiate. Uh, that in competition, women tend to shy away from um, competitively based compensation schemes where men actually seek them out. Um, and this has been found in the lab, but also uh, in the field. Um, risk aversion, the evidence is a little more mixed there, but it seems that women are more risk averse than men. Uh, I have some qualifications. So these are, all right, how do they relate to the pay gap? Obviously, if you don't negotiate, you're leaving some money on the table. It can contribute to the pay gap. Competition might uh, uh, tend to channel women into particular types of occupations or might limit them uh, moving up. And risk aversion, there's probably a compensating wage differential for more risk averse, uh, excuse me, riskier occupations. Women won't be getting those higher wages for going into riskier <coughs> jobs. It also could affect performance in some areas, though it's kind of not clear whether it be positive or negative. We might have preferred in the run-up to the uh, recession and the financial crisis if we had some more risk-averse people <laughs> managing our money. And there is actually one experiment that finds that um, speculative bubbles are less likely to form when you have um, female experimental subjects than if you have male subjects. Some qualifications um, in terms of Interpersonal skills, uh, women actually uh, have been shown to, a big surprise, no, I'm joking, <laughs> but uh, women have been shown on average to have more interpersonal skills. Uh, and actually there seems to be some evidence that, that uh, those skills are getting more important in general in the labor market, and that favors women. Uh, caveats. Um, factors favoring men, as I hinted, may not be optimal in all circumstances. Interestingly, in the lab experiment on competition, women competed too little in terms of maximizing their uh, economic outcomes, but men competed too much. I mean, they, they, they enjoyed the competitive thing, and they actually low-performance men decided to compete, even though they, they didn't win. Um, women sometimes encounter negative reactions when they act in unfeminine ways. Uh, for example, they negotiate in polls at all work that I cited up there. Um, and so that is part of a more general thing that has been found that uh, women are kind of sometimes walking a tightrope. Obviously, if you don't negotiate at all, that's a problem. But if you do negotiate, you may get uh, an unfavorable outcome or a less favorable outcome than uh, a man does. And there's a psychological trait called agreeableness where similar results have been found. That is, um, uh, you actually in our labor market get rewarded for being disagreeable, which is not entirely surprising. But uh, men get more highly rewarded for being disagreeable. Uh, because it conflicts, again, with traditional uh, gender roles. Um, so um, I think non-cognitive skills might be an important factor in the unexplained gap, but there's caution. Again, some of them may be captured by measure characteristics. 
mainly evidence is from lab experiments, so more and more is coming from field experiments and follow-ups. And um, it's difficult to measure their quantitative impact, you know, since they have been in the lab. But in the paper, we actually looked at a number of studies where uh, they used statistical analyses and data on psychological traits. And we found um, that um, it doesn't cover everything, but it suggests a modest effect for these factors, that these are not going to prove to be the this, this silver bullet. They do have an effect, but it's modest. Now, now, Hannah, I have one more chunk I can either skip or do. I think we're dying to hear it. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> Thanks. Um, in the newer factors, another really fascinating thing, and I have to say, non-economists, I'm sure, have been aware of this for longer uh, than economists, but the idea of gender identity and norms. Akerlof, that's the George Akerlof who won Nobel Prize, though not, for his work in this area, which was subsequent, <coughs> and Rachel Cranton have developed this idea of identity. And this uh, is the sense of belonging to a social category with a view about how people should behave, norms, and the idea that it is costly to you to behave outside those norms, so you do not want to do it. And Bertrand, uh, Kamenica, and Pan took this idea and ran with it in a very inter interesting way, and they investigated the norm that a wife should not earn more than her husband. And uh, literally, that 50%, going over it, going not over it. And I'm, I've highlighted the thing that, the result that particularly relates to wages, but let me mention all the results. Within marriage markets, that's geographical areas. They found if potential, if wives would potentially earn more than husbands, given the characteristics of the area, marriage rates were reduced. Uh, within couples, if their statistical analysis predicted the wife would earn more than her husband, she was less likely to participate in the labor market, or if she did, her income was lower than predicted. So that's the thing that could relate to the wage gap. And then within couples, if a wife earned more than her husband, the couple was more likely to divorce. Now, I would mention uh, that I think this is changing. Uh, Pew has done some studies where it asked the, the share of people that think it's a problem if the wife earns more than her husband, and that's definitely been decreasing over time. It's particularly low for college-educated people. So I, I'm not sure I share the full pessimism, but then I have to say, since we wrote this, there's a new paper uh, that seems to fit right in here. It's by uh, Burstyn, Fujiwara, and Pillay on MBA students. And they gave questionnaires about job preferences and personality traits. If they, <coughs> first-year students in a prestigious business school, if they told the students that the results would not be shared with their fellow students, uh, men and women, and uh, single women, men, married, and single women all answered very similarly. But if they said the results would be shared, single women <laughs> lowered what they said about their ambitiousness and about their earnings expectations. So it seems to 
fit very well with this, that they did not want to be uh, off-putting to their um, fellow um, students and potential mates. So in conclusion, women have made significant and dramatic progress in the labor market, but inequalities do remain. Probably no, in my view, one single unified explanation of the gender wage gap, but it's a combination of factors. Uh, traditional factors, in, but by, by traditional again I mean things economists have known about for quite a while, including discrimination are likely important. Differences in the location of uh, men and women by occupation and industry are the most important measurable factors. And it would be helpful to understand more about the reasons for these differences. Uh, newer insights are emerging about gender differences in non-cognitive skills and psychological attributes. I think they're important, but I don't think they are um, a silver bullet. So thank you very much. Yes. Um, so I was wondering whether how the increasing labor supply of women has actually featured into that. So if you know, because that might still, if the selection changed over time, that might also somehow explain as unexplained the decrease in the unexplained part, and it might be difference across the skill distribution or something. Um, that's a great question. Um, we uh, looked at that in comparing the 1980s uh, to the 1990s. And uh, we found that um, it, it does seem uh, like in the 1980s, one of the things uh, that happened is, of course, the gender pay got narrowed. But also, um, there was a real rising returns to skill. Returns to college were increasing. And we found some evidence that was consistent with um, selection favoring more highly skilled women, both in their measured characteristics, but also their unmeasured characteristics. So it, we, we said it might explain a, 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 a small but noticeable part of the closing, uh, uh, of the unmeasured, unexplained, sorry. So it was a factor in the unexplained in the 80s. The 90s, it goes the wrong way. Uh, that is, um, with uh, welfare reform, it was actually less skilled women who were incentivized to enter the labor force. Yes? Yeah, so I uh, wonder about the future of this research agenda. Mm -hmm. What would you consider are like the most pressing questions that people should prioritize? Or like, it would just be interesting to hear more about the things should be the most important areas of research going forward. Well, um, I think, again, this industry and occupation thing is very important. I think it is a little hard to get a handle on because some of it is choice and preferences and some of it might be discrimination. And I also think that um, another factor that, that, that is related is probably levels of the hierarchy. That's not uh, uh, very good in um, a lot of the data sets that I uh, deal with, at least. Um, also, I think that the firm is uh, not emphasized enough in economic, uh, at least in economic type analyses. Um, I actually did my dissertation on the gender wage gap and in particular how um, within occupations 
men and women were segregated by firms, women were disproportionately located in the lower paying firms, and that explained a lot of the gap. But because it's not available in a lot of data sets, it's not looked at. Now we do have increasingly, well, I mean, if it holds up in the new administration, we have data, administrative data, which does permit you to identify firms, so I think there might be a really rich kinds of things you can look at in data where you, you, you have um, firms. Um, but, and then the whole policy arena. We have a summary on policy, uh, but it's short, and I don't think we know as much about, uh, as the question implied, like private policies of firms and the impact of uh, public policies. Yes? So in terms of the selection occupation industry, we know that women tend to select less into STEM subjects. I wonder if there's any work on kind of identifying where, I guess maybe a cross-national thing, like when that's at what sort of stage in the educational arc that starts happening. So I feel like that could be key in terms of why you start selecting into particular sectors. It's just out of interest. Yes, I mean, uh, I think there's just now, uh, and it's just like uh, I, I was uh, chatting with some people uh, before this. I have a, um, a textbook on gender that um, the first edition, it's, we're going into our eighth. The first edition was uh, published in 1986. And I felt like uh, I could know almost everybody by name, you know, <laughs> who was working in this area or whatever. Uh, stuff is just mushroomed. And, uh, it, it, there is interesting recent work on STEM that we were not able, just from space, to summarize here. But it, uh, it does seem like uh, one difference is um, staying within it. So uh, there is already a gender difference whether you go into the area, but women are more likely to drop out before graduation. Then another, uh, so they, and they certainly come out with uh, fewer degrees. But it's really strange. They even conditional on a degree, they're less likely to go into STEM occupations. And then they further kind of move out of STEM occupations. So there's just a chilly climate, you know, the famous uh, discussion of how the role that math plays in that and the debunking uh, of that. But um, I just don't feel like we, we really fully uh, understand. But I do think uh, gender role stereotypes are very important there. And, um, you know, having gone into a male profession myself, especially more, it was when I got my PhD, women were getting 7% of PhDs in economics. When you're in an overwhelmingly male environment and you slip up, you tend to think, oh, right, you know, I guess I really can't do it or something. If you don't feel like you've uh, fit the profile, I think that's hard for minorities when gender or uh, racial and ethnic uh, minorities. And I think that some of what's going on is uh, yeah. If we go back to the slide on the adjusted, uh, you, don't, you don't have that. Okay. <laughs> the adjusted uh, wage gap, yeah. it was something like 9, 9% or 8% right. now. Right. Uh, what portion of that do you think is based on the, the gap between women of different races salaries compared to like all men. Okay, so we did not break that out. We did have um, race as a control. So uh, this finding controls for the fact 
that uh, unfortunately um, some racial, racial groups do worse for both men and women and they are a, a, a little more prevalent in the female workforce than the male workforce. <coughs> but we did not break that out. But I would say that an interesting thing that in line with future research that um, we were looking at stuff for a reporter and I think we found the coefficient on race was more negative than it had been in the past. So the, there are you know, maybe some increasing uh, problems in that area. And we do know overall that unfortunately um, the closing of the race gap has really stalled since um, that almost the mid 70s. But I'm afraid I can't answer like that specific question. Yes. Um, I, I think that the, the size of the self-employed or independent workforce is growing and I was wondering if this uh, analysis has anything to say about women who aren't in traditional payroll jobs and firms. Yeah, well, it is interesting. I mean, because again, I've been looking at this for a long time, and people, and it doesn't mean it'll be different in the, it won't be different in the future, but people have always been kind of pointing to, to self employment. They say, well, you know, self employment, that's a good option for women because if they encounter a chilly climate, if they need greater flexibility, well, they could be their own boss or whatever. It's actually been pretty stable. Um, the share, uh, women are a little less likely to be self-employed than men. And it, it hasn't been incre increasing uh, that much. But we did have this whammy of the Great Recession. So I don't know, you know, if it's sort of getting ready to change. But anyway, we actually excluded self-employed people from our analysis uh, because it's so much harder to measure their wages and what their wages mean. Yeah. Yes? Just a minor question. If I had the 2010 PSID, yes. um, I was wondering whether you observed um, some significant differences if you take something before the crisis, or have you observed like short-term dynamics that remain persistent after the crisis in terms of gender gap? Yes, well, we did because we really worried about that. And also the other years, are uh, our comparison years are pretty good years. So that makes it doubly of concern. This is one of the worst recessions we've had, and the, and the uh, previous years we're comparing are, are pretty good years. So we did the whole analysis for 2007 and had the same broad findings. So what we were doing, it doesn't seem to have been majorly affected by the recession. But it would be a concern. Might this be changed if you incorporate uh, self-employment as the previous question? Um, I, I haven't looked into, I, I don't think self-employment would be a big deal, but you know, uh, maybe. The other thing is, if our goal had been to say what happened over the recession, we might find some interesting things. I'm just saying the broad findings we have here are not affected. your data and your results, do you have any suggestions in terms of the policies that organization and government can do in order to close gender gap? Meaning something like parental police policy or work family issues? Wise? Right. I think um, Partly based on this and, and some other work, uh, work family issues are quite important. So also with uh, Larry Kahn, uh, we did some work on female labor force participation. And we were comparing 
uh, the United States to other OECD countries. And uh, 30 years ago, no, 20 years ago, 1990, the U.S. was towards the top in terms of female labor force participation. Now uh, we're like towards the bottom, 17 out of 22 countries. Uh, I, and the countries are a little surprising. Uh, I don't want to dump on any countries here, but I mean, some countries that, let's say, are not known to be very forward-looking and feminist uh, are starting to surpass us. Um, so uh, anyway, what we found in that paper is um, that one difference between the U.S. and these other countries was the emphasis on um, uh, parental leave and part-time opportunities, or what we might call uh, uh, family-friendly policies. And that did have explained about a third of the U.S. falling behind the other countries. But there was an interesting sidelight to that, and that is we also found that the U.S., in terms of how women who were in the labor force were doing, the U.S. was towards the top. The U.S. had the highest share of uh, managers who were female. They had higher share, uh, we, we, the U.S. had a higher share of women in traditionally male professions. So what I think with parental leave is um, it's, it, it's a question of getting it right, and I don't know the magic answer to getting it right, but uh, you want to give women um, much more opportunity to remain fam uh, firmly attached to the labor force, and ironically, parental leave is very important for that because it gives women a stake in returning to their former position. But on the other hand, if you, if you go too far, as it were, if it's extremely generous and extremely long and there are a lot of part-time options, you risk developing a mommy track where women who might otherwise um, be very competitive with their male coworkers are kind of um, shunted into uh, part-time uh, positions and, and very long leaves and things of that sort. So it's a question of getting the right balance. Yes? So when you, when you go back to this chart about the breaking it down by uh, uh, into quantiles, uh, at the bottom, like, it's probably just hourly wage, like, all hours are fungible, it doesn't really matter, but when you get to the top, it, it seems like there's some sort of aggregation that happens over your career, right? So, like, if you look at a doctor or a lawyer or something like this, it's number of clients, they increase as you go through your career, in shock, it could set you back to zero, right? So, did, did you, were you able to break down categories into like uh, based on a certain type of salary or a certain type of compensation that define these sort of, these sort of gaps? No, no, we, we, we uh, weren't. And that's the question that was asked earlier about bonuses. I mean, I do suspect, you know, that could be uh, an issue. And moreover, um, we certainly controlled for actual experience. So this is, I mean, we're not comparing a highly experienced uh, male doctor to a new uh, female doctor. But having said that, there might be, in what you're saying, a, 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 an interesting uh, research project looking at it at different experience levels, which we do not. Um, and in general, we know that all wages tend to fan out over time. And uh, in general, we think the pay gap gets larger over time. 
yes. can I follow up on that? Have yeah. you looked at that? So I've seen just uh, news reports showing greater gaps uh, among older than uh, younger workers, even uh, cross-sectionally across time, gender gaps. So uh, they'll look at the gender gap among, you know, the 20-somethings, 30-somethings, 40-somethings, 50-somethings in 1970, 1980, 1990, 2000s or something. Uh, have you, do you, do you have any sense of careful, were you I just saying it, that they're, that well, well, first of all, uh, Claudia Golden does have a breakdown like that. Okay. Yeah, and, uh, and, and it, and there is another paper in the ILR review and, um, that I can tell you about that, um, but it's not by any means all, uh, so, so I guess that one issue that's come up too in this other paper is how much of the narrowing of gender gap is new cohorts coming in and doing better than in the past versus, versus improvement within a cohort of people. Mm. And uh, I think both going on, but a lot of it is these new cohorts probably coming in and then they age, you know, with a better start. But anyway, it does fan out. Well, it could also be that the same person is less competitive at certain stages of life if you have yeah. some of these, like with the gender division of household labor. Yes. I mean, it could be that stage of life is the yes. constraint. And I saw something that uh, said, I have, I'd have to go back and check, that in the years you're thinking of, the pay gap gets especially large, larger, begins to fan out. Or that's when it begins to fan that's out. That's when it begins yeah, yeah. And looking at sort of the role of experience and that then present as control, does it matter if we sort of break sort of experience differences being caused by voluntary or involuntary leaves from work? Oh, well, I mean, the, these are such great questions. I mean, that's a whole paper in itself, absolutely. Um, we are not getting into that here, but there is literature that, you know, suggests you're right on the target. and. Um, that is, if you're displaced from your job, it's, you take a much bigger hit than if you quit your job, for example. Um, so that would be an interesting thing in the gender comparison, because I would say um, a high proportion of the cases, maybe the, the male loss of experience is involuntary, and more cases, the female losses, the voluntary. So it'd be interesting. You don't have that in the data we use, but I think you could get it in for some shorter time period. Just one question about your data. When yeah. you, you were showing the greatest gap was, uh, well, the greatest greatest gaps and the greatest also unexplained gaps were for the 90th percentile of workers. What does the data look like? Is it there, is it that there, is it, is it that there's just a really, I mean, are there, is this driven by outliers, by the men, or is it fairly, just out of curiosity? Um, we did break it up uh, to, to look at that. Um, there is a feeling that um, in these data sets going much above 90, so this is literally at the 90th percentile. So just you're looking at the 90th, so you're cutting out the tail. I wasn't sure exactly. Yes, how that's right. That. Okay. It's not okay. averaging across okay. the tail. Okay. So, so it, it is precisely. It was just at the 90th. Okay. Yeah, and that it's not well enough measured to do similar at the 99. Okay, yeah. Like that. yeah.
Did I wear you down? So this is so exciting. Thank you. Wow. Filled us with so many things to think about. This is absolutely wonderful. Thank you. So um, uh, before I ask you to join me in um, thanking our speaker today, I just want to quickly remind you that um, we have our seminar next week uh, on March 30th with uh, our Kennedy School alum and former WAP fellow uh, Stephen Frost, who's going to talk about his uh, book on inclusive talent management: How Business Can Thrive in the Age of Diversity. So. Um, we're going to go, we'll go to a, a practical uh, presentation next week, but that's largely based on his experience with the uh, running, running the Olympics, right? Doing talent, right. talent management for the Olympics. All right, wonderful. Please join me at that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.